When women return to work after a baby, there's a lot our society implies about how that's supposed to look, but it's different for every family. On this episode, a few things that women, their partners, and their managers can do to support a better transition in returning to work. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 639. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the big inflection points for many of us in our lives, in our careers, is a baby arriving. And thinking about how do we balance the work that many of us feel so passionately about and the parenting responsibilities. And while that does fall to all kinds of different people and situations, it especially hits home, of course, for mothers. Today, a conversation about how mothers, their partners, and also the workplace and managers can really work together in order to support a return to work in a way that is a easier and more healthy transition for everyone. I'm so glad to welcome to the show Dana Greenberg. She is the Walter H. Carpenter Professor of Organizational Behavior at Babson College. Her main area of research focuses on understanding the intersection between individuals' work and non-work lives as they move through their career. Her scholarship is guided by the belief that individuals can and should be able to live full lives at work and at home, and that by challenging current assumptions regarding work, we can find better ways for businesses, families, and communities to thrive. Her other research stream centers on the scholarship of teaching and learning. Here she's focused on the continued changing landscape of higher education as it pertains to how we teach, what we teach, and how we define the lives of academics. Dana has published more than 30 articles and book chapters in leading journals, including the Academy of Management Journal, Human Resource Management, and the Academy of Management Learning and Education. She speaks internationally on issues pertaining to work life and innovation in education. She is the co-author with Jamie Ladge of Maternal optimism, forging positive paths through work and motherhood. Dana, what a pleasure to have you with me. Dave, thanks so much for having me today. I was so struck by this book. I mentioned to you earlier that I wish my wife and I had had this book 10 years ago when we were navigating being new parents. And one of the things that really struck me about your work with Jamie is that, yes, return to work after a baby arrives is a big decision point. It's a big transition in the lives of parents and mothers especially. And there's also a lot of other decision points along the way. It's not just return to work. There's really a broad, long-term spectrum of how we think about parenting and work, isn't there? There absolutely is. We think about return to work as this foundational entry people have about how they're going to think about integrating work and family. And it often sets a foundation for a couple even of how they're going to be doing this in their career. But as you know, these transitions continue to happen. So you, you set up processes, you get things working in your job, you get things working in your home life, and then something changes. Maybe you change childcare arrangements. Maybe you have a child going to kindergarten. Maybe you have a child who then transitions to middle school or eventually get to what we think about as as 
parenting young adults and when they're in college. And each of those require us to rethink what is our arrangement between our work and family structures. And so this is a conversation that's constantly changing, constantly evolving, but it really does start for many people with that return to work period where they are often for the first time as first time parents navigating the realities of I have a job I love and I have a family I love and how do I put those pieces together? And we do often think of those as either or at least a larger narrative in our society and there's a there's a big both and here and Jamie and you write in the book every working mother's path is unique and should be celebrated not lamented women often instinctually look to what others are doing for comparison and answers but what women really need to do is look inside themselves to decide what works best for them there's always someone who is going to be managing work and family differently you may see their approach as better or worse than what you're doing But instead of evaluating them, working mothers need to ask themselves what they can learn from those experiences while crafting their own paths. And I read that and I thought there there just there is the tendency in our society and the narrative for a one size fits all approach to like how we do this. And I think it has the tendency of leaving parents, especially moms, feeling a bit inadequate, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And I think part of why that has developed and why we continue to perpetuate it is so much of what gets written on this topic continues to fuel the idea of one size fit all. So we have so many wonderful books out there on working parents and particularly working mothers, but there are a lot of guidance and advice and here's how you do it. Here are the quick five steps, here are the quick 10 steps. If you do these things, you'll you'll successfully integrate work and motherhood. And I love you starting with that paragraph because that was really foundational for writing this book and it's foundational to all of my research and writing. Every person needs to look at their individual circumstances and figure out how they're going to put these pieces together, right? You were mentioning you and your your wife trying to figure it out. That's going to be very different than someone who is going at work and family as a single parent. Right. Um, what you do is going to look different than someone who's, who's going at work and family in the context of maybe a, a broader extended family and multi-generational living. Each one of us has to approach this conversation based upon our own unique family circumstances and our also work and career circumstances. Yeah, and there's it's interesting how some of those experiences get popularized and talked about a lot, and some of them don't. And there's one other paragraph in the book that I highlighted more than any other. And I think for me, it struck me as the message I think sometimes we don't often hear. And this this quote I'm about to read is from a mom that you highlight in the book. I think it's at the very beginning of the chapter on return to work. She writes, society makes you think that you should always be crying. And I just wasn't. But that then made me feel guilty. What was wrong with me that I wasn't feeling that I wanted to stay home with the baby all the time and be a stay-at-home mom and dedicate my whole being to raising this tiny human in the best way possible? What also surprised me was how many times everyone assumed that it was an incredibly difficult transition to leave the baby. Instead of telling people, this is so much easier than I expected, I would just lie a lot. So my challenge came when I interacted with everyone else. I believe I'm a really good mother and I love my daughter to pieces. And just because I choose to work doesn't mean that I shouldn't have children. I also know that I'm really good at my job, even if I leave at five to get my daughter. I have to say all this because I constantly feel defensive about feeling good. 
And I read that and I thought, wow, like our our popular media and our press like really do tend to lean into the guilt and the anguish narrative. And by the way, there are absolutely people who feel that. Like I'm not meaning to discount that in any way, but but that's not the only narrative, is it? Absolutely. Not. And I love your statement initially that I don't want to discount that, right? Because particularly for women who have very short maternity leaves, who have unpaid maternity leaves, who are going back very early, they may feel very differently than individuals who have much more appropriately generous situations where they may be going back after four or six months. We have a rhetoric, particularly in the United States, but I see it internationally about this idea of intensive mothering. And it it came about somewhere in the 70s and it has only gotten worse. And when we started writing about it in the mid 90s, this idea that the right way to mother is for a woman to dedicate herself fully, emotionally, intellectually, and time-wise to her child. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing mothering right, right? So with that in the background, then when a woman returns to work, there's this sort of implicit assumption that she's not doing mothering right and she should and will feel guilty about it. And it's just at odds with the experience that most women have. The other thing that I think is really interesting, Dave, that you mentioned at the introduction is this idea of a decision point versus a transition point. Mm. For all returning mothers, the re-entry after pregnancy is a transition point. For most, it's not a decision point. The, The data right now, recent 2022 data is that Women with children under the age of 18, 73% are in the workforce, and 68% of women with children under the age of six are in the workforce. Most women today, given the current economic situation, returning to work is about bringing home a paycheck and participating in the economic stability of their family. And that is essential to their role as mothering, but not something we think about and talk about and is in our traditional narrative. Yeah, and that word you just said, traditional, I think it's interesting too, like as I reflect on my own journey as a parent and our family's journey, like how much our own upbringing does shape what we see and the assumptions we make. And one example of that is I remember both Bonnie and I grew up in homes where the dad worked and the mom stayed at home most of the time when we were kids. And Early on, when we became parents, we, we've we always believed, and fortunately, we've had the resources to be able to do this, to do co-parenting. And so like both of us, as you point out in the book, nothing's 50-50 in life, and, and certainly not in parenting, but like really working to create a shared experience of like both parenting our kids actively. And I remember early on, there was a, a day of the week, I think it was Mondays, that I just happened to always be with our kids, because that's the way our schedule was falling. And... I started referring to that at one point as like, Monday is dad's day. And and my wife was like, no, <laughs> you cannot refer to that as dad's day. And I remember pushing back at the time, like, why not? And there were other people in our lives that made that reference, like when dads would hang out with kids. Oh, today's dad's day. It's Monday. And, and Bonnie was just really wonderful on this. I didn't think that at the time, but now looking back, where she said, but you you frame the assumption that if today's dad's day, every other day is mom's day. And it's one of those things, Dana, that 
until she said that, like, I didn't realize the own bias I had because of the family I grew up in, even though that wasn't the bias I wanted to, that wasn't the story I wanted for our family. Just by having grown up in that environment and like thinking about it that way and be surrounded by it, I was unintentionally sending a message that I didn't even realize I was sending. And that's exactly what happens. And and frankly, the same thing happens in an organization, right? So you're talking about this in relationship to your relationship with your wife, Bonnie, but the same thing happens in companies, right? As individuals, as managers or as colleagues, we may have our own biases or assumptions that come from our background or maybe come from the ways that we have chosen to integrate work and family with our partner if we have a partner. And those biases can unintentionally seep out when we're talking to women. And so some of the things back to where we started, this idea of people feeling guilty. Well, maybe somebody's partner felt guilty in returning to work. And so you as a manager just assume everyone feels guilty. And so then you want to try to be really supportive. And by doing that, it actually can really backfire because maybe your employee isn't feeling guilty and now they're feeling guilty about not feeling guilty. So as managers, we have to be equally attentive to some of those assumptions we bring to this conversation, whether it be based upon our upbringing or based upon the choices we've made about how we're going to integrate work and family. When you have those conversations with women and with leaders and organizations, what's the kind of thing or the kind of language that is an indicator that maybe it's helpful to think about this in a different way. Because I, I think intellectually, like it makes sense everything you just said. I'm trying to think, okay, if I'm a manager, how do I know if I'm potentially doing that? What would I would I be hearing myself say? Right. That's the really hard part of this, right? If everybody yeah. has a different situation and wants something different. I love the fact that your program is called Coaching for Leaders because it's, it's the exact same principles of coaching. I'll give you an example. This isn't about return to work. This is a faculty member. In addition to my role, I'm currently a division chair of 30 faculty. And I happen to have a faculty member who's about to go on maternity leave. And, and faculty maternity leaves look very different than the rest of the world and society. But one of the things that I did with this faculty member is I sat down with her and I said, look, I'm not going to make assumptions about what your maternity leave should look like. I want to just talk to you and find out, do you want me to check in? Do you want me to reach out? Do you have any concerns? Would you rather be just sort of have your time alone and not hear from your colleagues? Help me understand how we can best support what you envision and think your maternity leave is going to look like. And by the way, let's check back in a month in just to say, yep, this is working for me, or you might want to change. And so as a manager, asking questions to understand what the other person needs can be a way to start that conversation. People feel really differently about returning to work. How are you doing right now? What is working for you? What are we doing that's supportive for you? What are we doing as an organization or as a team that maybe isn't feeling supportive of your return to work and you as a colleague and as a professional and also as a working parent? Yeah, and I'm thinking about what you said earlier, too, of transition versus decision point. And one of the things I heard you say there is that I love the, like, let's check in in a month and see, like, because sometimes a month in, things have changed and decisions have changed on how to approach something and how someone feels about return to work and leave is has changed during that time. 
That's exactly right. And and during those first, we both know, during those first few months of a child at home that first year, things at home are changing incredibly rapidly. And so as a manager, being able to support somebody during those changes and trying to figure out how do we ensure they're feeling successful as a professional, as a member of this team, that's going to set a long stage for that person feeling loyal to you as a manager, loyal to the organization and your ability to retain them. So taking the extra time to coach people upon reentry usually benefits the team and benefits the organization as well as the individual. One of the passages in the book that really struck me that I know Bonnie and I have both heard, especially early on when we were parents, is statements from Often it came from us from like extended family, but I know it comes in the workplace too of like, I am so impressed of how you're doing it all, like to a mom, or I don't know how you do it, or this was a full-time job for me being a parent, and like it's impressive how you're able to balance it all. And those are the kinds of things that I, I'm sure I've probably said to someone at some point. And it's it mostly I think it's well intended, but it statements like that have some unintended consequences sometimes, don't they? They absolutely do in a couple of different ways. First of all, they perpetuate that gendered idea that you were talking about before, right? When you said like, oh, it's dad's day, right? We rarely say to a working father, I don't know how you're doing it all, right? So that comment reinforces this idea that it's predominantly a someone who identifies as a woman's responsibility to, to quote unquote, do it all right? Versus it's a family's responsibility to to do it all. The second of which is it can be undermining in a couple of different ways. Uh, a lot of women never feel like they're doing it all. And, and most of us are never doing it all at the same time. And so for some women, they may start to feel like they're an imposter, like everybody thinks I have it completely together. And I don't. And that sense of the fear and the psychological repercussions of imposter syndrome can set in, which also can lead them to feel less than qualified as a professional, less than capable in the workplace. Or it can undermine them in the sense like, well, maybe people didn't expect me to be as capable and competent upon returning to work, or they don't think I'm capable in moving forward in my career and taking the next promotion, and I need to prove myself more. And all of those end up undercutting our sense of efficacy and confidence about ourselves at work. And, and so again, I encourage managers to, if you if you want to compliment someone, compliment them on their work. Like you're doing a great job here. What is the work you want them to be doing? Ask them questions about home, but you don't need to compliment them on their being a working mother. Yeah. It's it's such a helpful, it's such a helpful thing to to consider. And one of the other things that I really appreciate that you point out is that, and, and again, this isn't the choice everyone makes, but for those who do decide to be both a parent and a professional, the point that those can actually help each other. Because I think like oftentimes we think of those as contradictory things, like I'm either being a parent or I'm being a professional. And those are in conflict. And I really appreciate the message in the book and in your work that actually there's a lot there that makes that can potentially make both of those things better in our lives, isn't there? 
There's so much that can potentially be better. And this has been a real focus of a lot of my research, even things I've done since the book. We actually have research and data that points to many of the ways in which women talk about being better as a professional after having a child and after taking leave and returning to work. And and, and I'll give you just two or three examples. One of my favorite comes from a popular press from Ruth Bader Ginsburg in, in her own work, where she talks about the fact that she thought she was a better law student because she had a child, because she was time blocked. And so at I think she said four or five o'clock, she would pick her child up from daycare. She had a couple of hours that were specifically dedicated to her child. And then she would come back to those law books and those cases. And she would talk about being able to come back to them with new insights, new perspectives, because she had stepped away. And she said, I would have never stepped away if I didn't have family responsibilities. Scientists that we've interviewed talk about the same thing because they have to step away from the lab, which is very scary for them. At the same time, it brings them new ideas and new perspectives, and they can come back to some of those really thorny scientific experiments and problems with new ideas that enable creativity and innovation to happen. So that's really one of the most interesting things that we hear a lot. The other thing we hear a lot is women talking about becoming better managers and leaders in two ways. The first of which is a a lot of women who have been highly successful, have had rapidly achieving careers, maybe are not always as empathetic or aware of the diverse situations their employees are. And they talk about parenting as the great equalizer. All of a sudden, what you do with a baby one day doesn't work the next day, or you do everything your friend is doing and your child is just really, really different. And so that all of a sudden, they have a lot of more empathy and perspective taking to the team and recognizing their team isn't going to do things exactly as they are. And how do they be more empathetic and relational to support that team? And that also, how do they delegate more? Women talk about being much better delegators and sharing responsibilities and giving people new stretch assignments because no longer can they say, you know what, I'm just going to work an extra five, 10 hours and get this done over the weekend because now I have different responsibilities at home and maybe I don't want to work that extra five or 10 hours over the weekend. Maybe I just don't have the time to do it. And I'm now delegating more to the team. So women talk a lot about becoming better managers after having having family and, and now integrating work and motherhood. I just love the perspective on this. And the big thing I'm hearing from you is mindset of like the invitation to change how we think about these things often as, at least often I did initially, is kind of competing like, okay, I want to be good at both of these, but these don't complement each other very well, to thinking about it as like, how does me doing doing both of these things actually help each one to get better? And to see that as like, yeah, that's actually also a valid way to look at this. And in fact, there's some really great examples and research of how that works really well to help women and their partners who have made the choice to to both work and to parent. It's super cool. And to ask yourself the question, right? Because we do, I want to be clear, there's a lot of challenge to this. The day-to-day struggles are real and difficult and thorny. And at the same time, I think we focus so much on those that we forget these ways. So sometimes stopping yourself on a regular basis and being intentional about it and asking yourself, hmm, how is being a parent 
affecting me at work or as a manager asking people that, right? Like, are there ways that you see yourself being better at work because you're a parent? Or is there a way that works helping you parent? I'll give you a perfect example. I have a, my youngest is now almost 20, but when he was a senior in high school, I've worked full-time my children's entire lives and at times certainly felt guilty about it. And at times had the push of, you know, why, why do you work? And I live in a town where there are not a lot of working parents, which probably was a mistake of a choice, but that's where we are. And he came home from his high school English class and he said, I was in a group of today of, with all the guys in our class. And there weren't many, this was a, a senior level class. And he said, every one of us had a mom who worked full-time and always has. Hmm. And there was, there was something interesting. He didn't articulate more. He's an 18-year-old boy, but seeing that there's something about my working that perhaps has positively impacted who he is and the kind of student he is. And, and this group of boys had this little conversation. And so, again, it also goes in the other direction. And I just think we, we don't stop to look for those. You have to look for them a little bit more, but they're there. Yeah, indeed. Well, and in the spirit of looking for things, there are things from the workplace perspective that do help because we do all come to this question, whether we're parents or not, and that how our colleagues and the people who work with us are handling this do affect all of us, right? And so this this line landed with me in the book as well. You write, men may be more likely to listen to the challenges working mothers face when they hear about them from other men. And there's an aspect of this that, as a man, that there are pieces of parenting that you, that I and most other men are never going to appreciate. And I, I think this is a really interesting invitation to how do men start talking about this more together, right? Absolutely. As I said, we we only are going to move this conversation forward if we start to ungender the conversation. And we do that, certainly you were talking about at, in the home dynamics of co-parenting, but how do we change the conversations in the office, right? Whether it be having working fathers groups and having them as a, employee, a specific employee resource group, having an opportunity to come together and talk about some of their own interests and issues around this conversation. Particularly, one of the things we know is that younger fathers, men who are in their 30s right now, really want to be involved and and deeply engaged as co-parents in a way that might be very different from their parents' generations. And so having those conversations and understanding what, what younger men want and having them talk about the ways that they are navigating and integrating work family and, and how that's helping their wives or supporting their wives' careers, how their wives' approach is supporting their careers, those conversations will start to change some of our people who have maybe more traditional views around how work and family should be integrated. And sometimes we're just more comfortable having those conversations and hearing those perspectives with individuals who we share identities with. There's so much to be done on both sides during a really complex time. And I think also about the invitation that you make to women and just thinking about how they talk with their partners, especially during maternity leave. And you use the term from Sheryl Sandberg on empowering your partner to be a quote-unquote real partner. And that there's that that can be really helpful and important to actually frame during those initial 
months. What's important about that? Those initial months, particularly when it's it's a first child, right? You both, and again, let's assume there's a couple here, are trying to figure out what does it mean to be a parent? And for women, this is really important, right? Because go back to where we started, which is all these narratives about what it means to be a good mother. And so a lot of women, and and as you and I both know, taking care of a newborn baby as a first-time parent is about the most humbling experience of one's life. Oh, yeah. And, And so a lot of women, as they're going through that, will engage in behaviors because they're trying to establish their own competency around it. They're trying to sort of lean into that new identity as a mother. They'll do something we call maternal gatekeeping, where to do that, they want to do everything themselves. And at the same time, if you do everything yourself, you're keeping your partner from establishing their own identity as a parent, whether they're mm. a male or female partner. They need that time with a newborn child to also connect to make mistakes, to figure out how to take care of the baby. And so women really need to almost stop themselves from engaging in some of that gatekeeping behavior because what you want to do is you want to go from an early stage on to set that foundation that we are both actively engaged in parenting and raising this child. I remember my grandmother who did not work for most of her life, gave me some great advice when I got married. And she said to me, when your husband vacuums, don't correct him. And it's the same <laughs> with taking care of children. You can't correct your partner. You're going to do things differently than your partner. And you both need to develop your own ways of doing things, your own competencies in those first couple of months around parenting, because it will set the stage in a foundation that we're in this together. That doesn't mean, as you said before, it's going to be equal all the time, but it means that we're both actively engaged in parents. And, And again, each couple figures that out. Some people really do have days that they're responsible for picking up, days that others are responsible for picking up. Some people have periods of time. Some parents love newborns and some parents love teenagers and 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 parent shared parenting may shift off. But that foundational experience from the beginning that we're both in this, if what you have to do as a mother is leave the house because you're going to correct your partner all the time, then that's what you have to do. But you have to give them the space and the opportunity to not only build a relationship, but build their identity and then build responsibilities for integrating work and family. Dana, there, I wish we had two hours. There's so much in your work that as I read, I just like, I kept highlighting and highlighting. I'm like, yes, I wish I had had this message 10 years ago. Um, I hope that folks who are at, certainly at this point of transition of maybe a baby's about to arrive, maybe you're in transition now, maybe you are a manager of a team who has new parents or a lot of parents who are on your team. I think this is just such a wonderful book. And I, the thing that's really beautiful that you and Jamie do is it's not just about return to work. As you said, it's, there's so many things that change over the time of our lives and our careers of navigating parenting, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a single parent or a couple that really do affect about how how all we we live and work and doing that better as a parent and and as a manager leading an organization like so helpful so i hope folks will take our invitation to find out more to grab the book i'll be linking it up in the weekly guide of course dana one other question for you i i 
I find often that as we do our work, we come across new things, we change our minds on things. As you look over the last few years, of course, the pandemic has happened since the book came out. So like the assumptions a lot of us made have changed in recent years. As you look back in recent years, what's one thing you've changed your mind on? I think what I've changed my mind on, and it actually also affects where I've changed my focus, is I I started this work really focused on the individual and the manager. And I, I do still truly believe, and, and I hope that many of your listeners will get a lot of benefit out of this conversation, and that affecting individuals, working parents, the people who surround them, the managers who are, are managing them and the organizations and, and making change at those levels makes this a better conversation. I would say more recently, I have gotten more and more frustrated by the ways in which the United States is not supporting our working parents, whether it be everything from lack of of childcare, which has only gotten worse post-pandemic, to the way we approach maternity leave or health leave or our discussions about mental health. We need more systemic change in this country if we are really going to be able to enable working parents to thrive, to be successful professionals, and to raise that next generation of individuals who are going to continue to move the country forward. So I turn my attention a little bit more to some of those societal level issues as well. Dana Greenberg is the co-author of Maternal Optimism, Forging Positive Paths Through Work and Motherhood. Dana, thank you so much for your work. My pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. We've obviously framed this conversation around mothers since that's the focus of Dana's work and research, and of course because we know that women disproportionately tend to land with more of the childcare responsibilities and household responsibilities across our society. And yet that of course is not the only way that parenting looks like. I'm thinking about the same-sex couples in our listening audience, the single dads, the foster parents, so many ways two-parent. And if that's you and the word mother may not land as an identity for you, I hope you'll take this conversation and utilize it not as an ending point, but as a starting point for what these conversations look like in your family and in your workplace. And I also hope that you'll dive in on Dana's book. There's so much more in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about how men show up in this conversation and, and so many other aspects that we didn't have a chance to talk about today. It's a great starting point, including if you are a manager, whether you're a parent or not, who has parents and especially new parents on your team. There's so much here for you that I think will help with perspective and also empathy. Several related episodes that I think will be helpful to you if this conversation was useful today. One of them is episode 310, How to Reduce Drama with Kids. Tina Payne Bryson was my guest on that episode. I think about her book every single day in my own life as a parent with our kids. The book No Drama Discipline has been instrumental of helping me to be a better parent, reducing drama in our household with our kids. Episode 310, if you're looking for a great starting point for that. I'd also recommend episode 417, Finding Joy Through Intentional Choices. Bonnie and I had a conversation on episode 417 about all the things we say no to. Part of being a good parent, a good professional, a good friend 
good spouse is deciding what are the things that you and also the we are not going to do. And Bonnie and I talked about that in episode 417. So many of you told us that was such a helpful conversation of having permission of what to set aside in life so you can do better at the things that are really important. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 589, how to create inclusive hiring practices. Ruchika Tolshian was my guest on that episode. We talked about how we can do a better job at supporting DEI in our organizations through how we think about our hiring practices. And of course, parental leave, parenting are big aspects in DEI and helping to really create an inclusive workplace. There's many other aspects as well. Ruchika in that conversation walks us through what are the things that we can do in our hiring practices in our job descriptions that actually help us to really begin to think about inclusion from even before day one at work, episode 589 for more on that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to take a few moments to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to a bunch more than is just available on the open web. One of the key benefits of free membership is access to my library. There's a section in there that says Dave's library. When you set up your free membership, if you click there, you're going to see the entire database of everything that I found in recent years of articles from Harvard Business Review, of news stories from the Wall Street Journal, of YouTube episodes or YouTube videos, rather, other podcast episodes, things that I found out there that I think could be helpful to you. And I've categorized them by topic. So you don't need to find resources. Utilize that as a great starting point. In addition, it's also the place that you can search for every episode by topic. I wish that was I wish that was available on all the podcast apps to be able to search by topic. Unfortunately, it's not, but that's why we have it built inside of the free membership. Set up your free membership by going over to coachingforleaders.com. And if you've had your free membership for a bit, I'm inviting you to learn more about Coaching for Leaders Plus. Topic guides are one of the key benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's where we zero in on a very specific topic, and I have a video walking you through who are the experts I think you should know, the episodes you should listen to, some key points, some reflection questions, if I could talk, on exactly how to walk through that. One of the topic guides inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus right now is where to begin with a new team. That's you. There's some really great things you can listen to in advance that will help you to get started well. One of the benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus. For more, go to coachingforleaders.plus for lots more details. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Tom Burbage to the show. He is the former program manager for the F-35 Lightning II, a huge project that brought together many different organizations that historically had been competitors and brought them together to work together on a massive project. We're going to be talking with him about how do you bring competitors together to actually work on something bigger than any one organization. Join me for that conversation with Tom next Monday, and I hope you have a great week. Take care.